everybody. Welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of August 25th, 2021. I'm Charles Hain, host of this podcast and writer at No Film School and filmmaker. I'm here with George Edelman, editor-in-chief of No Film School. Hello. Todd Blankenship, cinematographer, tech writer, uh, brilliant Texan. <laughs> Thank you so much. Hey, how's it going, everybody? And this week, we're going to be talking about a multi-billion dollar deal as Adobe acquires Frame.io, which has like many angles to evaluate. We're going to be talking about some of the biggest cinematographers in the game, Deakins, Chivo, and also John Lindley, the president of Local 600, signing a letter asking for an address on long work days on film shoots. All that this week on the No Film School podcast. Our top story this week, Adobe has bought Frame.io for billions of dollars. I mean, not billions, billion, like $1.24 billion, a lot of billion. There are so many ins and outs. The first thing I have to say, full caveat, A, I interviewed the CEO of Emory Wells for my book. So I like I have a lot of thoughts on this because it's a book on business and I ask them a lot of business questions. But B, I've written for their blog. So, you know. All caveats aside, I think I have a pretty objective view of Frame.io, but I have written for their blog. I've made money from them. So got to say that whenever I talk about the uh, clients. This is insane. So a little bit of context. If you don't know Frame.io, they are a work in progress review tool. So, you know, one of the nightmare pains of life is navigating remote clients. I remember, you know, 2008, 2009, you'd send notes to, you'd send a cut to clients for feedback and you'd get like 15 different emails with 15 different notes that contradicted each other that had no good system. And Frame.io built a tool and a couple other people built a tool, but Frame.io's, and I say this not just because I've written for their blog, but also objectively Frame.io's is the best. Um, there are some other competitors that are close, but oh, Frame.io is so good at this, where the client can just log in and put in time-coded notes and it integrates really well with your editing software. This didn't start this way. You know, it was an incremental process, but eventually it got to the point where those notes would flow through to your editing software as markers. And then especially great, those markers would stay in place as you made changes. So it eventually got to the point where like, you'd have notes on a 10 minute cut. And even if you started making changes at minute two, making the whole thing shorter, the notes would move and stay in place over the part that, you know, someone was giving you a note about. It's killer good. It's, you know, it's, uh, Frame.io is a good reminder that implementation matters more than idea because multiple people have this idea. I was actually in a meeting in 2010 with someone who had a very similar idea. And I remember like looking at it and being like, if you can build that, we'll all, you know, he wanted me to work on it. I did work on it for a while. I was like, if you can build that, we'll all be rich. But he didn't have the tool set to build it. Emery had a partner who knew how to build it. Emery knew how to design it. He uh, they'd already launched a successful app, the Catadata app, if you ever use Catadata to calculate how much hard drive to buy. So it's not just an idea, it's execution. And their execution was slick as hell. And they did a Series C a couple of years ago, which is big, which is kind of a big deal. They did a $50 million Series C in 2019, which was like on the road to maybe someday going, you know, like as you're raising money, usually a Series C, like you're starting to get serious about like, what's our exit? Like we're taking in all this money, like where... Are we going to try and go public, maybe? Are we going to try and get acquired? And I know that I thought maybe they might try and IPO, honestly. So I was surprised that they let themselves get bought. Wasn't Jared Leto one of the investors at one point? I think I remember hearing that. Is that a thing? I think he was part of the Series C. Okay. 
They've also been on a hiring binge. So Alexis Van Herkman, who has a popular color grading blog and wrote a couple of versions of the Resolve menu, just announced that he's leaving Blackmagic for uh, Frame.io. Michael Cioni left of famous for starting Lightiron, who then worked on the Millennium DXL project at Panavision le- after Panavision bought Lightiron, left Panavision for Frame.io. Probably got some stock in that deal, I'm going to assume. So probably made a lot of money in this purchase, I'm going to guess. I don't really know the details. I mean, those aren't public. But, um, you know, I'm look- uh, on my LinkedIn, the number of people I've seen recently be like, I'm so excited about my new position at Frame.io. They've been hiring for the last year. It's fascinating. I mean, at a certain point, Adobe just must have offered a number, one point something billion, that Emory was like, all right, well, if we go public, it'll never be that good. Like, however much Emory owns now, he just must have done the math and been like, okay, now's the time. I will take it. You know, it's... Yeah, that, that is a lot of money. Like, when I... I mean, my jaw was on the floor when I read that number the first time. I mean, it's a great tool. But, I mean, for a company to be... I mean, it's, it's been around for six years only. I mean, which, you know, in today's landscape, that's simultaneously a short amount of time and a long amount of time. But it's just like, I don't know. I think I, think I didn't realize just how, I don't know, how valued that company was. And I mean, I, I, of course, I've used it plenty of times. I've had plenty of clients like almost require it. And I mean, as you said, like when they came out with what they came out with, it seemed like, you know, every like Dropbox started trying to do the same thing. Google started trying to do the same thing. And like, you know, the, the landscape was like starting to match what they were doing. But yeah, I had no idea that it was that, that, uh, I don't know, valuable. One is like what, $1.275 billion. I mean, it's a lot of money for, for a tech company, you know, especially I would never imagine someone turning that number down regardless of what was going on. Yeah, I mean, I thought they probably would IPO as well. I mean, I think there's two interesting takeaways from, because yeah, that's a really good perspective that that is a huge number. The two interesting takeaways for me are one, sort of this reminder of there's so much video being, like when I first heard of Frame.io, when when six years before they launched, a friend of mine pitched a similar idea. I still thought of filmmaking as being really niche. So like, in my mental math of like how much you could make by building this special tool for filmmakers to make client notes easier. And it wasn't the same idea as Frame.io. Frame.io idea is much slicker and simpler. My buddy's idea was way more complicated and again, didn't know how to build it. Um, he's gone on to start another very successful company, smart fucker. But huh. like, I never would have thought a billion dollar valuation because I just didn't think there were that many people dealing with clients getting notes. I thought it was like me and 10 of my friends had this problem. So I was like, oh, me and 10 of my friends would love this solution. So maybe there's a few million dollars if you build it and I'll help you with whatever feedback and being part of the team and whatever, because I thought it was a good idea 10 years ago. But like, I remember this when I interviewed Emery where he was like, there is so much video being made by collaborative teams and there's only going to be more. It is such a bigger thing than you think. And then the other thing is Emery's never given this away for free. It has always been a paid product. It has always been a a well-paid product. It's always been pricey. And, you know, until, until the pandemic, there was no academic discount. Only when the pandemic started did academic discounts start becoming a thing. And they were very reluctant about it. And it's not a hefty discount. It's a, it's a good discount. I'm not going to insult it. It's been useful. We've used it at the school where I teach. It's been amazing. Fucking very grateful for the academic discount. But it's not a like, you know, I mean, there's some places where academics just free. But they've always believed that their product was worth something. 
And because of that, I think that they always have had, you know, if they gave it away to a third of their users, I think a lot of startups would do that. A lot of startups would be like, all right, well, all students and all indies or whatever, you get it for free, which like, I would love it if they did that. But then that would cut a third off their revenue. And when you're going to Adobe and you're trying to say, we're worth this, you have to show a bunch of documents about how much you're taking in. And uh, having all of that revenue all together as you do that, I think is a really big and useful part of that process. So yeah, I mean, also we forget how much content is made at the big corporate level where, you know, it's a drop in the bucket for TBWA day to pay for this. Like compared to the money, you know, they probably spend more on breakfast for everybody that doesn't get eaten <laughs> than, I, I than two, they do in Frame.io. I have two questions for you guys on this. Um, because, and I want to try to approach this a little bit from the outside of, you know, listeners who may not use it or be super familiar with its role in the workflow. Firstly, how many other tools do what Frame.io does, but not as well? Are That's there tons? One- that's one thing that I've always found kind of interesting about Frame.io is when it came out, like being someone who has written for blogs and writes blogs about video and film tools, I have, over the years, I've gotten at least 20 to 30 emails from people starting something that it sounds exactly like Frame.io. Like it's it's people trying to do something that's like video collaboration type workflows. And I've always, I don't know, it's, it's, it's weird because when you think about all the things that you can set out to do in this, you know, the video world, creating a tool that makes it easier to get more feedback just isn't as like, you know, for lack of a better word, like it isn't as sexy as like a cool light or a new camera or anything like right. that. You got people <laughs> just starting these like, like, well, ours will do transcription, you know, like, and it's just like, okay. I mean, ultimately at the end of the day, these are all things that with, with the wrong team allows more cooks in the kitchen and with the right team allows you to crank stuff out a lot faster. And I've always felt like anytime I've ever had someone ask me to use one of these types of services, I always kind of groan a little bit, except for when it's Frame.io. I don't know how they've been able to kind of make it so much more of a pleasant experience, but it just is. And so I, I would so say you're saying you, you're saying they there are many and they stand way apart from the others. I think so. Yeah. I think and so. And Charles, I know you have something of a bias. I mean, you have something of a bias here in terms of relationships, but would you agree that in principle that it's like that there is there's a lot of ways to do this, but they're the one that seems to stand apart? Oh, head and shoulders. Oh, yeah. No, no doubt. They are the best and always have been. So Um, it does make sense then that this is, I mean, from the perspective that Adobe is like, Adobe, there's a lot of, like, I know Adobe is, is like a a pun comic dad joke, but it's a premier post-production software. (laughs) But I, but like, I, so, but there's competitors, right? And they're coming up hard against it. There's lots. It's, it's not a crowded space, but there's a few at the top that people look at. And so, now I'm starting to look at the landscape here and think like, well, it does make sense maybe that they would pay whatever they could for the very best tool at something that is so important going forward to the workflow with remote becoming commonplace. Now, like the pieces fit together in my mind. What I was like initially from my perspective looking at the stories confused by was I was like, I know Frame is great, 
But aren't there a lot of ways to do this? Why is this one worth so much? And you guys have kind of answered that. Well, there's there's also, there's three sort of keys, I think, that are worth looking at. One is that, the, you know, uh, Frame.io has been working really hard on what they call C2C, camera to cloud workflow, where they've been working very hard. One of the reasons they recruited Michael Cioni, who works to build the Millennium DXL camera, is to build a workflow where the camera, like right now, if I want all my dailies in Frame.io, I shoot, I download the card to my laptop, I upload them to Frame.io. There's an extra step there. Frame.io just launched and has been working very aggressively to be the leaders in camera to cloud. Your camera directly is automatically making dailies that show up on the cloud. DIT, no, no DIT, it doesn't matter. So if someone's sitting in an office, they can start editing those dailies right away. I think that is a big thing that like, Adobe has been really pushing their creative cloud for as long as they've had it, but I've never had a good cloud edit experience with Adobe's cloud tools for the like, my media is on the cloud and I'm editing it and someone else is editing it at the same time. I've never had that go well. And I think that they want the wisdom, technology and experience Frame.io built in that. And none of the competitors do that as well. I mean, there are competitors at the high end that are very expensive that do that. No one who has Frame's user base no one that has frames, like wide swath of people have that. I think it's also really useful to remember that, like, honestly, Frame.io is more attractive than all the other software. Like, I use Vimeo a lot of times. Like, if I'm working on a job and the client doesn't have a Frame.io account and I don't have it for that job or whatever, I'll use Vimeo for notes. And, like, it just looks, like, not as nice. Like, Frame just well, looks and, slick. And one thing, like, when with Vimeo, you need your video to actually play when you hit the click. You click the play button, which is yeah. a big problem for me usually. I don't know about you. <laughs> yeah. And I love Vimeo, and, but it's just not as, it doesn't, it's not as robust. Whereas Frame.io is robust. Frame.io is also, it's one of those things where it's like the, they know who their client is and they optimize it. It's like that thing when you realize Dropbox in the end really doesn't care about video because like, like I've uploaded the same files to Dropbox and Frame.io and it's five times faster to upload to Frame.io than it is to Dropbox. Because at the server level, they're optimized for video. They want to make it as easy as possible for you to get your video up there. Whereas Dropbox is not. Like they they handle a whole bunch of clients. They do a whole bunch of other stuff. So like I don't think there's a real competitor. What's interesting for me is right now there are really slick integrations with Premiere for Frame.io, but also honestly, Final Cut and Resolve both had interesting innovations. The traditional thing with integrations is it comes to Premiere first. Premiere is dominant enough that like usually a plugin is in Premiere first. Like one of the big, I think it was Pond5, one of the big stock footage companies like rolled out their new plugin. Of course, it's always Premiere first. Like it's all, everybody is Premiere first. And that started with the Frame.io too. The first time they came out with plugins, it was first on Premiere. But the last couple of features they've rolled out have come to the other platforms first. It was Final Cut first for the thing where your notes would move with the timeline. As you made edits, the notes would stick with their place. That was Final Cut first. In fact, when Apple did their press call, Emery was on that press call, which is rare for Apple. Apple almost never has third-party integrators on your press call. You're usually talking to Apple engineers. But all of a sudden, they were like, and Emery's on the call. And I was like, oh, hey, Emery. And that is interesting. And then they rolled out at NAB 2019 amazing Resolve integrations where your Frame.io drive just shows up as a hard drive in your media pool in Resolve, and you can just start cutting from it. And it all just syncs up and it makes dailies that are like low-res proxies automatic. It's just like slick as hell. And those integrations came way earlier to other software than they did to Adobe. So I think at least partially what'll be interesting to see, because 
you know, publicly frame IO saying we, we remain committed to all four major editing platforms, including Media Composer. But it's going to be really interesting. I think we're going to see new stuff roll out in Premiere first only, is my guess. Yeah, probably. I mean, it, I mean that's not like a big assumption to make. It, Emery actually hopped into our on our Facebook and was commenting on the on the actual article post saying a lot of that same stuff like we're not giving up on you know the DaVinci uh, integrations all that sort of stuff so I mean that's that's promising I mean if he's saying it I feel like that's got to be true but I, I definitely know that's the biggest criticism of the deal probably and you know a lot of people a lot of people have certain feelings about Adobe right now it's I, I just really like kind of going back to what you're saying, they they definitely seem to be opening up to more different integrations, things outside of the Creative Cloud. Like, you know, they just recently invested in Blender and and created a couple of add-ons for Blender and things like that. So it's kind of you know, it maybe they're kind of making more of a play to become a little bit more accessible other in other pieces of software and things. I don't know. I I kind of just really help. I know my frustrations with Adobe. But like, what are other sort of frustrations with Adobe? Because like, for me, it's been like, I gave up my Creative Cloud subscription this year, which, and and honestly, it wasn't even like a particular thing that was annoying me about Adobe. I just realized everything I was still doing in Premiere, I could just do in Resolve. So I became Resolve only in the last year or so. If, if, it, if it weren't for all of the After Effects tie-ins, like uh, Mogerts and, you know, just dynamic link comps and stuff like that, I would have made the switch. I've... Every edit I've done for the better part of a year now, I tell myself, okay, this is the last one, particularly for Premiere. And I think wow. that's where... That, yeah, and I, I mean, I, I have always loved Premiere. I've always loved it. But for me, and I think this is... Does it love you back? Well, <laughs> definitely not these days. But I think, I think like, I, I will try to voice what I would imagine some listeners might be thinking in their heads right now. And, and these are definitely things that are echoed through every time Adobe's mentioned anywhere right now is it doesn't work. It doesn't work anymore half the time. It's, it's, they, they keep adding features, but can I export the video? Can the video export without an error? That's for me, that's like, there's like certain like robustness that other things seem to be starting to have over time. And that's my frustration is for me, I love Adobe. I've always loved Adobe products. I'm I've, After Effects is what pretty much launched my career. And, and I love that I can do After Effects stuff in Premiere. But for me, it's like, I just really hope they have a game plan. Because if they're acquiring things to make more integrations into Premiere, I, I would really hope that they're also, if they're going to spend $1.2 billion on so your clients can give you notes, I really hope that they're spending... A similar amount or more money on just like giving me more GPU performance, giving me more stability even. I mean, there's like random things that just happen. I've kept a running list like of just random errors that make no sense that happen across multiple machines. And when you go look them up, they're just like, eh, maybe try saving it on a different drive or something. I don't know. And, and it's very frustrating. But again, I, I do every edit ever in my whole career other than like the way back in the final cut pro seven days in premiere. So it's like a love hate relationship. It's like a, 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 like my brother, he's messing up and I just really want, I really want to see him succeed. You know what I mean? That's, it's just, that's the feeling I have these days is like, 
there's there's free tools on the way. You know, there's free tools that are everyone's switching over to. And and I just really, I don't know. I, I I really hope that stability is also a big priority. And I mean, I think with Apple M1 machines and all that sort of stuff, they're like, you know, that's definitely becoming a thing. But there is a feeling when I hop into Resolve and I've been kind of learning it and dabbling with Resolve here and there, it, there is a feeling where I'm like, man, this really just feels smoother. Jeez, you know, and um, it's getting more and more awkward every month. And then when I see a big, uh, you know, when I see them acquire something for so much money, I'm just like, man, I really hope, I really hope they, they're, they're working on the other stuff too. Because, you know, the more and more it feels like people are jumping ship. I mean, what I hope Adobe does is I hope they take a page from Blackmagic and they make it all one app. Because the thing is, it's like Dynamic Link is great. But, I, you know, I just cut a bunch of commercials. I've been cutting a lot of commercials in the pandemic. It's the weirdest thing, but I've been enjoying it. It's super fun. And honest to God, the ability to not Dynamic Link, but have it all be the same timeline. As I go in, I, I'm not doing any fusion on these. There's a VFX team on them, but I'm doing all the sound work on them. So I'm going back and forth from the edit to, to Fairlight, to the edit to Fairlight, to the edit to Fairlight. And there's no like, waiting on another app to load. There's no like, oh, and then I render it back to Premiere. It is literally, you know, like I do all my work in Fairlight and then I go back and I make edit tweaks and it all ripples. And it's like, I can't imagine living without that now. And like, you get that out of Final Cut Pro, although their tools aren't as robust for especially right. color grading. You get that out of Resolve. Media Composer is a different thing. They Media Composer is always going to have their clients because nobody else, if you have nine editors, like cutting Olympics footage, media composer. No one else is going to beat you there. Like they own that space. So I think, I mean, honestly, as much as Dynamic Link was amazing a decade ago when we were used to the old Final Cut 7 workflow of like, all right, well, I render out this file and do I use it in animation Kodak or ooh, ProRes Kodak? And then I put it in After Effects and then I render it back out and I drop it in the timeline and do I want to layer it? Or like Dynamic Link was such a huge thing a decade ago. But I honestly feel like Adobe really needs to drop a like, single timeline app that gives me After Effects, Premiere, and Audition in a single timeline yeah, without linking. It's definitely time for, at least with the motion video side of their offering, they, it's time for them to swing for the fences in some regard. Like, there needs to be, you know, obviously not some, because, you know, the Final Cut Pro 10 debacle, like, let's not have that. But, like, just something on that level. Like whenever I use, whenever I hop between Illustrator and After Effects, I'm always like, they could just make this the same program and just put the vector stuff in After Effects. And whenever I'm in, you know, Premiere, I'm always like, well, they could just put this in After Effects. So to your point, it's like, I kind of think that there is definitely a very real sort of, I don't know, like I would love that. If 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 they could make it robust enough, it, for me again, the the whole thing is the stability because it, it it in a weird way it almost feels kind of like because if you're a creative professional, you're gonna have Photoshop probably. You're probably like it's probably paid for by your job, or you're gonna have it. I mean, you need it. There's free options for sure, but people just use Photoshop. Well, if you want anything else, you're gonna you know like you're, you're probably gonna have a Creative Cloud subscription. I mean. If if you do that sort of stuff, so it's just like, I don't know. It, it I've always felt kind of hamstrung by it. I think a lot of people feel hamstrung by it, and I, I really just hope they have a game plan for like. I would love it if two years from now, there's like an entire sweeping change to Premiere, and and it's all just a lot more stable and all that sort of stuff. Like I'm kind of dealing. I mean, I know I might sound a little bit jaded, but you, like you're talking to someone right now who's like 
I have this process right now of every time I want to export a video, I have to save it on a save the project file itself on a different drive, try to export it, it'll fail. I have to save it on a different drive, try to export it, it'll fail. And then I save it back on the original one that I was originally on, and then it works randomly. It's just the weirdest, like there's weird little bugs that I'm dealing with. And I, I think a lot of people are starting to notice these bugs more and more. So yeah, to go all the way back to the frame thing, it's just like, okay, okay. I mean, yeah, keep building out functionalities, keep adding new thing, you know, n- new feathers on your cap. But please, like, just make sure that you're building the, the back end in such a way that all these things aren't just making it more unstable. Yeah, that's a fair note. What's interesting to me, Todd, you got to start cutting in resolve. Here's but <laughs> but here's the opportunity though for Adobe because I'm going to stay neutral in this. Right now, Resolve has all single timeline, but their VFX tool is too sophisticated in my opinion. It is Fusion. It is a full 3D compositor. The beauty of After Effects is the first time I used After Effects 15 years ago, I literally just opened it. I didn't do a single tutorial and I monkeyed around and I figured out how to do the thing I wanted to do on the shot. Now, I had a roommate who did After Effects and I asked him a couple questions, but like that was it. You open After Effects and you can sort of like push your way through it without like feeling like you need a lot. Fusion is not like that. You open Fusion and you look at it and you're like, what the fuck is this? And then you close Fusion. It's super powerful, (laughs) but it's like it's too much. Well, and it's it's a completely different mindset. With the nodes, it's like iterative. Like, so you build systems and it's like, and Obviously, After Effects is just layer-based. So it takes, to me, I've, I've definitely dabbled in Fusion as well. And it's, it's a great compositing tool. It's the best, uh, at least for free or whatever. But it, people always try to make the comparison, and there's no comparison. At, like To me, After Effects has the entire market cornered on 2D motion. And, and the, the, the compositing side of it is maybe a little bit more of a, like a plus. But you, if you're trying to do motion design in Fusion, like it, I've watched the same processes happen literally simultaneously. Like I had a kind of like a battle with a friend one time, and it was like about basically doing the same thing in Fusion versus After Effects because he was trying to prove a point because he wanted me to switch, and and you know not to not to toot my own horn, but I you know I smoked him. <laughs> so it was yeah. just like, you know, they just do different things. And like, really, uh, there's, there's some stuff. What's the one? There's a new, there's a new 2D motion graphics thing that's, that's like kind of coming out. I, I keep forgetting the, the, the name. It's like, um, hit starts, film? No, 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 no. It starts with a P. Dang it. I can't think of it. But there's that, there's like per, this weird procedural motion graphics thing that's kind of like, it's making waves a little bit. It's like the Houdini of, you know, motion graphics, basically. I'm going to look that up because it's going to drive me crazy. Well, here's the thing. I think Blackmagic needs to buy them and integrate it because, frankly, Fusion is great, but give me like a real simple 2D sophisticated motion graphics tab as well. But if Blackmagic doesn't do that, After Effects, if you built a single like After Effects premiere thing that gave like you, you'd get some people back, I think. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And it's cavalry. That's what I was thinking of. It's it's Ooh, really I inter- even heard of it. Yeah, check it out. It's like uh they started out, I think it's going to be paid or it might be paid now, but I, I caught it while I was in like a beta type deal. And it's it's like kind of that middle ground between a node based workflow and a and a layer based workflow. 
it's like it's like very I don't know it's very iterative uh it's like a really interesting way of thinking about motion graphics so yeah I like when I saw that I was like okay cool like one thing I do think is like I, d- I definitely think there needs to be more 2D motion graphics tools out in the world especially if you don't want to because you know literally I can't think of anything that's even close to the level of After Effects in that regard. All right. So for Adobe, we're glad you bought Frame.io, but don't use this as an excuse not to work on your, your fundamentals. There we go. All right, moving on. Up next, Deacons, Lubezki, better known as Chivo, and other top DPs, including John Lindley, who's the president of Local 600, and that's a big part of this story, wrote a letter asking producers to address long work days. The, like, this has actually been a subject I've been working on for a while. I'm about to launch, I think, another podcast called Distorted by Glamour that is just about like labor issues in film. I think film should work eight-hour days. I think it's insane we don't. I think it destroys lives. Uh, and, I, you know, and it's been a big thing this year. There's a big Instagram account going right now called IA Stories that you should all follow. Just people telling stories about how miserable it is to work these hours. This letter... I, I love in a lot of ways. I think it's a little narrow in its focus in that it only talks about health. It's like, we need to work less hours for health, health, health. And I'm like, I'm fine with health. Health is great. But also like, we should just work less hours because we like, even if it's not about health, don't we all deserve to like work an eight hour day and then like see our family at night? Or if you don't have a family, just like smoke weed and play video games. Like, like what? Like health is great. I just think focusing too much on health makes it a like, feels a little bit like giving in the argument. Like, we should just work eight-hour days. Like, why do we need to give a reason? Like, can we just say, let's work eight-hour days? It. I was really glad to see the president of Local 600 signing the letter because unions are how we got to an eight-hour day in the first place. Like, if you don't know, read about the West Virginia Coal Wars. Like, an eight-hour day and a five-day week, people paid for that in blood. We did not used to work that. If you work an eight-hour day and you have a weekend, it is because of unions. And so I was really glad to see Local 600, which is the Cinematographers Guild the president signed the letter saying like, look guys, like we have to do something. I think, you know, it is something that cinematographers don't have a lot of power over. I remember I was shooting this music video and I just started dating someone new and she was like, oh, okay, well like you're the DP, right? So like, you'll know when you're going to get off. Like, can you just like, you know, like I want to buy these tickets to a concert or whatever. And I was like, no, 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 no. Being the DP does not actually give me the power to leave whenever I feel like it. Like the shoot's going to be the shoot. And you know, the DPs, but I think it's good to have really big ones putting their name in this letter. I think it's going to take a lot of action to get to the point where we as a film industry all agree that like, we should just shoot eight hour days. This is stupid. I don't think it'll ever happen. I mean, well, who knows, but I feel I'm with you a hundred percent. First of all, like I'm, I'm completely with you that this is the right thing to do. We have a culture of overworking. People put their work above themselves, their health, their sanity, their family, their friends, their everything. And we grind people to dust. We don't care. And the cost of human life is cheap in this world and it's awful. But <laughs> all that aside, I think that in the entertainment industry, I'm, I'm so glad that they that people like this in this position tried to take a stand on this sort of topic because it's it takes people like that to try to create change. But I think that the problem is there's such, what's the best way to break it down? There are so many people always willing 
And we talk about this. We're at this at no film school. We're at this weird kind of convergence of worlds where you know people trying to get in, for example, break in and get started. We often advise, even last week or two weeks ago on our good deal, bad deal segment, we will say things like, you know, sometimes you're going to have to work for free. You're going to have to earn your, you know, you're going to have to learn. You're going to have to cut your teeth this way. So our industry is just so. And I know that's a whole other story. We're not saying work for free on a union shoe, you know, but uh, that would be wrong. It would be illegal. But my point is just, I think that the industry is so well designed to exploit people's time and their dreams that it'll be very hard for this kind of thing to really help um, everybody. It may help some people, but I think that there's going to be workarounds and there's going to be continued efforts to exploit and continually be people who are willing to be exploited for opportunity. That's just kind of the dynamic of it, unfortunately. Well, and there's, there's so many movies being made for all kinds of different budgets, for, you know, all kinds of, like... The ones where there's not a single union within miles. And, you know, it's like, you know, you, you hear those horror stories about sets with horrible safety practices. In in my market, kind of the common phrase is 12 on 12 off. I don't know if y'all have that up there. But, it, you know, it's like, like, you know, literally the rule here, you know, in terms of being a respectable production, if you're not dealing with unions is, you know, you, you shoot for 12 hours and then you have to get at least 12 hours not shooting. And I can't tell you how many times I've been on a set where that was just completely disregarded, even though everyone, like there's, there's really like a pervasive thing in culture right now where people want to act like they, they care about these things until, until it counts. And, and really like, and really, like, what happens is you're you're standing around on set and you're like, okay, it's been like two hours longer than what I was supposed to be here for. And I have to wake up again and come out here. And there's this feeling of like, but we have these actors here now and they're not going to be able to come tomorrow. So we gonna, we're going to have to just push through. Sorry, guys. You know, and it's it's kind of one of those things. It's It's a lot of what we sort of talked about last week with just like the bad deals and, and like being valued and all that sort of stuff. Like it's hard because you, you want to, like you said, it, it's so well catered to exploiting your dreams. That's the best. That's a really good way to put it. Yeah. I mean, thank you. I, I think about my feature, one of my feature film experiences. Well, I actually think about all of them, <laughs> but I think about one of them when I was a PA and I was non-union and the DP and the production designer. And I think the UPM, I think a number of people had their, had alternate names on the call sheets because they were union, but they wanted to do this indie feature that starred major names. Like there was a lot of like cutting corners. This was a long time ago, but in order to exploit people and to get around certain rules. So, you know, I, it's, it's, it's hard. You're in a position of privilege if you can sort of demand certain things and you're in a position of privilege if you're in the union and you're in a, and, and you, and then a lot, but then a lot of us like on a set like that, we're just like, well, man, I'm just here to like get a gig and, you know, build my resume and learn some stuff. And like, 
yes, also carried trash. And yes, also from based on where I lived, commuting to the to set. And then based on what my responsibilities were after wraps, like after taillights, it didn't mean I was done. And it didn't mean I was home and my head was hitting the pillow. So yeah, in terms of how much sleep I was getting and what kind of quality of life I had, it was really poor considering like the demands and the stress level. And that was all like, hey man, you want to learn? You want to be a part of it? That's what it takes. And so, and also on, on, on the entire other end of the spectrum, I've been an indie producer and a project I was doing and we shooting in LA, for example, we, we had to be in the zone. So in, you know, we weren't union, we were SAG, but we were ultra low budget, but we were, and so in order to get, you know, certain things to go through certain, to, to check certain boxes, we had to be a certain distance from LA, which we maximized. So we were on a film ranch, which meant, you know, we're as far as you can go, basically legal Stable ranch. Yeah, I think it was, I forgot the name of it. It was one of those ones that everybody in USC uses too. <laughs> it might've been that one, but yeah, it was like, we were as far as you could go. So as far as you could go and also have people go home that night. So not put them in hotels. And I being like a producer was, you know, first one there, often last one to leave. And so, and then commuting back against traffic after night shoots and not sleeping and having other responsibilities. And it was a danger for me to be in the car. And, you know, there were days where we hit our 12 hours and the crew would get a little grousy and I would be thinking, fuck, we got a like second meal and these people have to go home. But then you have your director who's, you know, like, I, this is it. I don't, we're not scheduling another shoot day. Are you kidding me? And then you're in this position like, well, what's the right thing to do here? Because if the movie suffers because of scheduling and budget limits, and by the way, it did, because it does, because those decisions, like you're making this almost impossible decision. Like, do I not want to get into South by Southwest because, and I'm not saying that's, that's what happens always, but like, this means I'm going to have to cram multiple days into one shoot and this blah, 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 blah. And, and, you know, or I'm going to follow the rules and respect the people on this crew who are here. Or like, how do filmmakers make this calculus? I ask people these questions all the time and they all have different answers, but I just like, I'm sorry to go on, but I just feel like this is such a complicated and nuanced issue. I think it, I think it comes down to like a really big issue is that like, just get the shot mentality. Like we just have to get the shot. It's like, no matter what costs, like you, you get sucked into these zones at times in, in this industry where it's like you sacrifice so much of your, you know, energy, blood, sweat, and tears to, to get the, the setups. You know, you get the lights all rigged up. Everything's looking great. It's perfect. The light's just right. And then, yeah, I mean, like say, say you get all that done and then you look at the clock and you're out of time. And I mean, obviously that's, you know, that sounds like you got a bad AD, but you know, for me, it's, it's definitely that sort of mentality that I just really try to seek out and avoid because sometimes, you know, you get, you just, it's, it's very intoxicating almost, you know, like it's intoxicating to be on set and, and to be, you know, in a shared experience with a bunch of people where you're all tired and you're all miserable and, and there's like a certain, you know, family type uh, feeling to that. And in a lot of ways that can be very dangerous because at the end of the day, it's, it, it is your job. It's your job and you deserve to get sleep. You deserve to spend time with your family. But there's like this sort of romanticized filmmaker in everyone's head 
the one who you know, we, we watched all of those behind the scenes documentaries yeah. all of our lives. Yeah. We've seen all those, you know, clips of filmmakers tired and, and the, the actors, you know, ready to go home at like, and this, and, and there's like a culture where those moments is what built that director's career. You know, uh, you think in I your know. head, those moments, like if he didn't do that, like there's, there's like a story that I've, I've always like, <laughs> I don't know why I know this, but like they ran out of money on the rock and Michael Bay was like, no, we need this explosion. And he like spent his own money on it and all that sort of stuff. And like, like there's like these stories that we just like, I don't know. It's like this culture of, no, you're right. It's through it's the not- sweat and through the tears. That's that. If you don't put that extra effort in, you're not going to get there. And, and I think sometimes we think on set when we're young, when I was younger or when we're in those moments and it's desperate, we think, oh, I'm really doing it now. I'm doing yeah. the thing that I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to be desperate and I'm supposed to be up against it and I'm supposed to be making these crazy sacrifices. And that's part of the ingredients that lead to, because it's just, you know, we're storytellers, right? That's but that's all new myths. That's all new myths, right? Like, yeah. you know, in New York in the 60s, your union day was 8.30 to 5. If they wanted you to before 8.30, you got time and a half. If you stayed after 5, you got time and a half. So like a 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. call, you're getting three and a half hours of overtime. Like this, so recently, movies you love, if you love The Apartment, if you love The Godfather, these movies just shot like 8.30 to 5. Like that was just what they did. Yeah, and like, you're right. And that, so, I think, yeah, I, I'm yeah, I'm with you. And I was just going to say- Chris Nolan, 10-hour yeah, days. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> Some directors still do it. <laughs> and that's the thing, is that for me, I think I actually have to go. But for me, the thing that I think is really like, it's going to be a big change for it to happen. But I think it's going to be like, the unions are going to have to get stricter about it, which I think they will. And there's always going to be, you know, there's, there's, you know, there's union, there's like good hour- auto manufacturing and then there's like crazy auto manufacturing like there's always going to be variety there there will always be productions that shoot 18 hour days but if we want to have more productions that shoot 8 hour day 5 day weeks i think it's going to be like getting unions to fight harder for it getting more people in the unions getting more unions a pa union like yeah a wider variety of things but i also think it's going to be involving the public like i think that I imagine a near future where like there's a there's a label for like this film worked ethical hours because honestly I don't want to watch a movie anymore if I know that everyone was worked 18 to 20 hour days. I don't like the same way I would rather eat meat where I'm like oh this animal was like raised ethically and got to go outside and get to eat <laughs> pastured eggs. I like, love that. I literally I pay a dollar extra for the These eggs PAs where I'm like These... were treated humanely. They were not <laughs> yeah, slaughtered. Like, <laughs> like why is that more ridiculous than these eggs than than these chickens got I to be outside? Dude, I, there, I, there, there has to be a studio that their whole their whole like angle is that they treat their their crew well. The title. <laughs> I mean, I now, would, now the I main, would, name of the podcast is free free range production assistance or something. Yeah, but I mean, like something like that. Like if there was a whole channel or a festival or a website that was like everybody worked an eight hour day and went home to their fam, I would totally be more incentivized to watch that content. Because when I hear terrible stories about abuse on like sets or the way crews are treated, it makes me not want to watch the movie anymore. I completely. Agree. And the idea of a badge that said or thing that was like everybody was treated this way and there were hours and there were caps. I would if if I found out a movie didn't do it, I would 100 percent not like it doesn't matter enough to me. Like there's almost nothing. I can't imagine what I would see at this point knowing if I was like, oh, yeah, they absolutely abused everybody and took advantage and didn't follow the guidelines. Well, let me like, let me not worth it. let me challenge you on that. 
uh, how do you feel about the Revenant? I I mean, I have deeply mixed feelings about that movie. Okay. So I think it's harder. I I know where you're going with this. Yeah. I think hindsight's twenty two. It's harder to say when it's something you've already seen and liked. So like you, can't, it's hard to go back and be like, oh, I wish I could unsee it. Like you know, you hear the horror stories about your favorite movies or your favorite athletes or your favorite like or Woody Allen or your favorite filmmakers or whatever, and then you're like, oh man, I don't like that. And yeah. it's too late. I already like it's the too, stuff. It's too late. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. But to your point, if I knew going in, if I knew before I saw The Revenant, if someone told me like people were miserable, basically, and mistreated, and they did not follow the basic rules that we, the guidelines, and they don't have the badge, I would be like, yeah, I'll, I mean, I'll skip it. It's like three hours and what? He's fighting a bear? Like, it's not that, like, <laughs> after having seen it, I'd be, I'm like, that was, that was great. Like, it was awesome. You know, so that's why I think it's so important that it cut the, the cart comes before the horse there. I just think, you know, like that kind of goes back to what I was saying before, though, because it, it almost felt like part of the marketing of that movie was how miserable it was to make it. You know, like, true. But I think you could you could have a miserable movie where people still worked an eight hour oh, day. That's true. Like, and, if it's and, cold and it enough. very well might have been that way. I don't really know enough <laughs> right. about it, but I just know they were like, you know, like. DiCaprio almost died. He was inside of a horse's carcass for real. Like, you know, right. it was just like yeah. this, this whole legend about it or whatever. He's a vegetarian and he ate the liver. Yeah. Right. And I mean, part of that's marketing hype, but I also think part of all of this is like a deliberate, I think when we start to valorize self-sacrifice, it's it helps us be exploited. So I don't yes. think it's an accident that we've all heard these stories of like people who worked so hard that like, that's how you got there. I think that's like a, like that that's part of the mythos for a reason. And, oh, and I want to change that mythos. I want everyone to know Chris Nolan does 10 hour days. Yeah. Every, no, this is a, it's an epidemic around all. It's not just the film industry. You know, there's a whole corporate thing now about like, how hard are you really working? Like how, how seriously, how much are you going to go above and beyond? And like, you know, HR departments exist to protect people from this, but you know, how much do you want it? You know, everything is like that. And it's like, you know, if you really want it and you want to put in extra time and you love your craft and it's important to you and meaningful in your side time, that's great. But it shouldn't be required. It shouldn't be expected. And it shouldn't be something you're not compensated for if it's all that, you know, all that. Well, it's also, there's that amazing story about Lady from Shanghai where Orson Welles didn't like the set. So he stayed up all night the night before shooting, repainting it himself. Yeah. I'm like, ooh, that story's great. Yes. He didn't make 15 people who are just <laughs> there to make a living wait for him. Right. Well, you know, he was alone on that stage. He stayed up all night painting and then the next day the crew showed up and they shot. But like you can do, you can be committed to making your thing the best thing that it could possibly be without making a whole bunch of people who are with you suffer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I mean, not to open up an entirely different can of worms, but like I, I would like for people to start thinking about these same types of things for people in the VFX world, you know, because they are arguably treated even worse a lot of times than than that you know you're right that's a really good point it's the whole industry and it's a norm we've all decided oh like we just work these hours and it's part of it and you get trained i remember on my first jobs people being like oh so this is how this works and i was like like what this is how it works and then within a year i was like oh this is just like what life is like you're just always at work it's just like that's the default and like that's insane yeah, if you ever that, had a job all, before film, you should know better. And we all have Slack on our phones, and we, you know, it's like we're constantly just working all the time. It's just such a such a big part of culture these days. All right. Well, the revolution is not going to stop. Unfortunately, 
Like, we're going to fight, and we're going to get to some film and TV being eight-hour days in the next couple of years. All right, those were two big topics, guys. All right, I'm on the internet at charleshane.com. You can check out my shows on Amazon Prime, Salty Pirate, and Angel's Perch. I am Todd Blankenship. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Am I a Filmmaker? And uh, we just put up some pretty cool new videos on the YouTube channel for Adobe about some cool VFX stuff with miniatures. So that was fun. Yeah, I'm George Edelman, Editor-in-Chief at No Film School. Thanks so much for listening. Yeah, head over to our YouTube channel and check out the videos on miniatures. You'll learn a lot about VFX and post-production from Todd, but you'll also see some cool stuff. Some pretty cool shit. I'm into miniatures. I like this stuff. So I really enjoyed watching it and it's fun. Of course, head over to No Film School and read about all these stories and more. You can follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, check us out on the gram. And thanks for listening. <laughs>